Welcome to this week's episode of the Big Book Living Alive podcast, a weekly podcast showcasing the 1993 Big Book Seminar presented by Joe and Charlie in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. I am your host, Brad S., and I am an alcoholic. So this week, we're going to find out about how Bill transitions from step one to step two. Now we're getting into 1934. Uh, Bill has already met Dr. Silkworth once, and after a relapse of about a year, he winds up right back in the sanatorium talking with Dr. Silkworth again. And he's getting to the point where he really is at the depths of understanding step one, of being powerless over alcohol. And again, Dr. Silkworth lets him know that there's a duality to this problem, that it's not just about the body, it's about the mind. Now, if this was some made-for-TV movie on Hallmark or maybe a good rom-com, I guess that Bill would take that advice and he'd turn his life around and everything would be all better and Christmas would be saved. But that's not the truth of the matter. Bill just didn't have it all put together yet. So he's back out again and he's drinking. And then he gets a call from his buddy, Emmy. Everybody has a buddy, Emmy. He's that guy. He's the companion that you know you can always get drunk with, plain and simple. He's the one that's going to be there that when you start drinking, he's going to keep up with you. Drink for drink. So let's hear Joe and Charlie discuss Bill and Ebby meeting that last time when Bill was drinking. To drink anymore. Self-knowledge would fix it. Let's see where he goes from here. But it was not, for the frightful day came when I drank once more. The curve of my declining moral and bodily health health fell off like a ski jump. After a time, I returned to the hospital. This is a year later, the summer of 1934. We go back into the town's hospital for the second time. And again, Dr. Silkworth explains to him the nature of the illness, the physical allergy and the mental obsession. This was the finish, the curtain, it seemed to me. My weary and despairing wife would inform that, was informed that we would all end with heart failure during delirium tremors or I would develop a wet brain, perhaps within a year. She would soon have to give me over to the undertaker of the asylum. They did not need to tell me. I knew and almost welcomed the idea. It was a devastating blow to my pride. I, who thought so well of myself and my abilities, of my capacity to mount obstacles, was cornered at last. Now I was plunged into the dark, joining the endless possession of sots who had gone on before. I thought of my poor wife. There had been much happiness after all. What, I, what would I not give to make amends? But that was over now. You know, Bill had all this hope, and he was always optimistic for tomorrow. No matter how bad things got, tomorrow was going to be a better day. But here at the end, Bill is hopeless. He can't even get it up and say tomorrow's going to be a better day. He thought I might as well just give up and go on to the bitter end, as, as many of us do. Dr. Silkworth had pronounced him incurable, and Bill assumed that the doctor knew what he was talking about, he didn't stand a chance at all. Now let's look at the next statement very carefully. He said, No words can tell of the loneliness and despair I found in that bitter morass of self-pity. Quicksand stretched around me in all directions. I had met my match. I had been overwhelmed. Alcohol was my master. I've never seen a better description of step one. No step one written in those days. But this is where Bill recognized he was absolutely powerless over alcohol. His life had become completely unmanageable. And this is where Bill reached his true bottom, he thought, and took step one. Now, if that should happen to you and I today, 
probably we would say, well, I guess I better go to AA. But Bill didn't have any AA to go to. He's in the best facility he knows of, and the only thing he can do is leave there and try to stay sober on his own, even though he knows what his problem is. Trembling, I stepped from the hospital a broken man. Fear sobered me for a bit. Then came the insidious insanity of that first drink. And on Armistice Day, 1934, I was off again. Everyone became resigned to the certainty that I would have to be shut up somewhere or would stumble along to a miserable end. How dark it is before the dawn. In reality, that was the beginning of my last debauch. I was soon to be catapulted in what I like to call the fourth dimension of existence. I wish no happiness, peace, and usefulness in a way of life that is incredibly more wonderful as time passes. Near the end of that bleak November, I sat drinking in my kitchen. And it's probably a pretty bleak November. He started drinking on November the 11th. The allergy took over. He couldn't stop. Now then, he's approaching the end of November. With a certain satisfaction, I reflected there was enough gin concealed about the house to carry me through that night and the next day. My wife was at work. I wondered whether I dared hide a full bottle of gin at the head of her bed. I would need it before daylight. Bill's pretty hopeless now. He said, my musing was interrupted by the telephone. The cheery voice of an old school friend asked if he might come over. Well, he was sober. That was years since I could remember his coming to New York in that condition. I was amazed. And, of course, we were talking about Abby Thatcher. Abby Thatcher had come over to see Bill, to talk to Bill, and maybe try to help Bill, because Bill and Abby were friends, and they drank a lot together. And Abby was sober, and we, he went over to try to help Bill. Of course, Abby was going to the Oxford group meetings at that time, and one of the tenants of the Oxford group was helping us to others. And Abby went over to talk to Bill about maybe helping Bill get sober. You know, rumor had it, when he arrived, rumor had it that Abby was in a, an insane asylum, and he wondered how he'd escaped. You know, he was amazed that he was sober, because this old drinking buddy, he knew how he drank like him. See, rumor had it that he'd been committed for alcoholic insanity. I wondered how he'd escaped. Of course, he would have dinner, and then I would drink openly with him. Unmindful of his welfare, I thought only of recapturing the spirit of other days. There was that time we chartered an airplane to complete a jag. His coming was an oasis in this dreary desert of futility, that very thing, an oasis. Drinkers are like that. He said the door opened and he stood there, fresh-skinned and glowing. There was something about his eyes. He was inexplicably different. What had happened? I remember in my own case and trying to identify with Bill the day I called my friend George, and George came over to my house, and George and I used to drink together, and George was different. There was something about his eyes. They were clear. George's eyes were black, and he used to have the yellow in the where the white was, and he had red streaks through it. But his eyes were clear. There was something different about George. There was something different about Abby. I was amazed. So was Bill. He was impressed by this. He said, I pushed a drink across the table. He refused it. Disappointed but curious, I wouldn't have got into the fella. He wasn't himself. He come, what's this all about, I queried. He looked straight at me, simply but smiling. He said, I've got religion. Damn, I'm glad that didn't happen in my kitchen. (laughs) Oh, me, I don't know what I would have done. (laughs) But here's what Bill did. He said I was aghast. So that was it. Last summer, an alcoholic crackpot. Now I suspected a little cracked about religion. 
He had that starry-eyed look. Yeah, the old boy was on fire, all right. But bless his heart, let him rant. Besides, my gin would last longer than his preaching. But he did no ranting. In a matter of fact way, he told how two men had appeared in court persuading the judge to suspend his commitment. They had told of a simple religious idea and a practical program of action. That was two months ago, and the result was self-evident. It worked. And you know, Bill had heard that Abby had been committed for alcoholic insanity. And back in those days, that's what they used to do with people like us. They would haul us in front of the judge. The judge would commit us to the state insane asylum for an undetermined period of time for what they called alcoholic insanity. And Bill had heard that that had happened to Abby. And the way he heard that is, Abby's folks had a summer place up close to where Bill lived in Vermont and where Bill was raised. Abby and Bill had gone to school together some. They had done a lot of drinking together. And when Abby's drinking got so badly or so bad that they couldn't handle it, his family told him, go to Vermont, stay in the summer place, get yourself straightened out. And by the way, Abby, while you're there, paint the house, clean up, and get things in good shape. Abby goes up there, of course, as the black sheep of the family, and he begins to paint the house and do a little drinking on the side. And one day he looked up and the pigeons were crapping on his paint job. He goes in the house, he gets the shotgun, he begins to blow holes through the roof, <laughs> trying to get rid of the pigeons. And of course, the neighbors didn't like that. One day he had his father's old car out and he was drunk and he ran into the neighbor's house. In fact, he went all the way in the neighbor's house, ended up in the kitchen. And the lady of the house is in the kitchen, and Abby steps out and doffs his hat and said, Good morning, madam. It would be a fine day for a cup of coffee, would it not? <laughs> and some judge with no sense of humor is about to put him in a nut house. That's the last Bill had heard about Abby. Now, all of a sudden, here's Abby in New York City. And Bill said, I wondered how he'd escaped. And Abby begins to talk to Bill, and he said, Bill, you remember that deal back in, uh, up there in Vermont that, that you'd heard about me going to the nut house? And he said, I didn't have to go to the nut house. He said, two men stepped between me and the judge and said, Judge, release Abby in our custody. We believe we found a way that he can learn to live and stay sober. And if you'll let us have him, we'll be responsible for him. And the judge, of course, turned him loose. Judges don't like to put us in insane asylums and penitentiaries. They didn't like to then, they don't like to today. And usually they don't do that until we force them into it. After a while, it reaches the point where they have no other recourse, so he gladly turned Ebby loose. Now, one of these guys that stepped in there to get Ebby out of trouble was a fellow named Roland Hazard. And he took Ebby with him, and he told Ebby about the need for the power greater than human power, the vital spiritual experience. And he said, Ebby, come with me to the Oxford groups, and we will show you a practical program of action. And if you'll use it, you can have the spiritual experience, and you can recover from alcoholism, and you won't have to go to the nut house. Ebby did that. Then Ebby went into New York City. He was down on the Bowery at a place called Sam Shoemaker's Place, and there they were working with other alcoholics. And while trying to help other alcoholics, he heard about the trouble his friend Bill was in. So he goes to visit Bill and brings him 
the solution. Here it's referred to as a simple religious idea. Which is step two. And he brings him a practical program of action. Steps three through twelve. Now then, Bill knows all three things. He got the problem from Dr. Silkworth. He gets the need for the vital spiritual experience, the solution, from Ebby, and he gets the practical program of action from Ebby. Now immediately Bill and Ebby begin to go to Oxford group meetings. But remember, Bill is drinking. He started an armistice day. He can't get stopped. Mm. The physical mm. allergies got him. Finally, finally, they begin to try to start doing something about this thing. But just before they went to the meetings, Ebby sits down and starts talking to Bill about this simple religious idea. Let's see where they go from here. Worked on a puzzle, 200, 500,000 pieces, doesn't matter. You know, you look at the picture on the box and you open the box and you throw all the pieces on the table. And I don't know if you're an edge in person or just pick an area person, but Bill was the receiver of all these pieces to this puzzle. And he's starting to put them together. Now he's looked at the picture, because he's an alcoholic, and he's dumped all the pieces out onto the table because his life is a mess, and he's started to see. He's had someone tell him, hey, fill the edge pieces in first, Dr. Silkworth. Okay. So now his friend Ebby, who was always, in our analogy, his buddy the puzzle completer helper guy, he comes over and says, no, 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 you see this great big area right here? Finish that first. It's okay. The picture starts coming into focus, but he doesn't have everything in place yet, although he has the pieces. The pieces for step one were given to him by Dr. Silkworth that he was powerless over alcohol. And Ebby gave him step two that he came to believe that there was a power greater than himself that could restore him to sanity. He didn't have to fight with religion. He could use spirituality. And now he's got that last step, that one piece, that big section that is step three, the making the decision to turn his will and his life over to the care of God as he understood him. And he's working through that piece, and we're almost there. And I know Joe and Charlie looking forward to telling us the successful part of that story, but I would also forward that there's one more piece completing that puzzle and that's all the little itty bitty pieces around when you've got the two major sections done and you strung it together and that one piece is holding the whole thing together as you start building the structure and the framework and the all the little pieces that are just one color or one little speck that's your service work that's your action that's building everything that goes into using what you started to learn in the steps because it's never too soon to start doing service work you know, they talk about back in the day how everybody would come in early and they would clean ashtrays and make the coffee. And today we don't smoke in the uh, rooms and there may be a curry. But that doesn't mean you cannot show up early and greet people at the door and start to get to know people's names, which is something I am horrible at remembering. But if I do it enough times, I remember. Because completing that puzzle means you have all the pieces, you spent your time and energy putting it together, and you even figured out the pieces that don't quite seem to fit at the beginning have a place in our larger picture of recovery. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode as much as I did. 
If you'd like just the raw Joe and Charlie portion of the podcast, that is available on our Patreon site. The link to that is available on our website or in the pinned comment. Until next week, this is the Big Book Living Alive Joe and Charlie podcast.